Hello and welcome to the 359th episode of The Creighton Crowbar, a podcast about PC gaming. It is on the time that and the date on which that we are recording this, uh, uh, the 24th of February 2021. I am Alex Wiltshire and tonight I'm joined by inexorable watcher of the weeping wall, Graham Smith. Hello. And arrant keeper of the infinite egg, Tom Senior. Hello, I have started using scissors to cut pizza slices and I'm never going back. (laughs) (laughs) Come at me, internet. You can't do that. That's not what scissors are for. Scissors are for food. You'll get get box on them. I assume you're going for a thin crust though, aren't you? Thin and crispy, delicious, but it works equally as well for a deep pan. (laughs) How big are your scissors? Do not judge me. Uh, perfectly normal size. Normal scissors. Uh, do not judge me until you've stood in my shoes in a stationary position cutting a pizza with scissors. Then you, okay, then well, you can judge Let's me. make it a project. Yeah. Everybody listening, please have a pizza within the next week. That's uh, right. Cut it with scissors and let us know at, uh, what is our email address? Crate and crowbar, crowbar. Uh, at gmail.com. At gmail.com. Let us know how you got on. We want to know. I want to know whether Tom Senior is right. I don't want to know that. He's morally wrong. (laughs) 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 Look forward to feedback on that one. Anyway, video games. (laughs) There was some news that just came along. Sad news for me, actually. Sad news. But rather inevitable all at the same time. Um, Yeah, it does feel strange and inevitable. Anthem is dead. Uh, It died a long time ago, (laughs) to be honest, didn't it? (laughs) Um, but there's there's always the sort of like the lurking promise that yeah you could like put loads of money into it and get Bio back on it, really like revamp it and take what was really fun about it, which was basically jetpacks and robots, and kind of build a game that was that worked. Um, and no, and that is no more. They made the decision just to, to kill it, and I believe it's uh, it's the COVID what did it. Is that right? <laughs> COVID was brought up, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Can't help. I'm not sure. Which seems, I, I do think there's a little unfair to COVID, to be honest, because... Deep, substantial systems problems with the game, which uh, I got very angry about when we actually covered it um, when Anthem first came out on this podcast. And I, yeah, it just needed a complete rebuild, like the whole, the loot, the loot system, everything. The only thing that w- was fun about it was, was the moment you launched yourself off an, a ledge and then flew around a bit. The rest was just didn't work it's it's not just that they spent a year and a half saying no we're, we're revamping it we're still working on it we've got big plans we've got an update it's gonna happen and yeah. then just now like I, I wonder how many people were ever working on it at one time yeah and how far those revamp plans actually got whether it was four people just coming up with pitches for it and not getting anywhere or whether it ever actually entered into a, a serious production cycle and it'd be very sad if they, they, it had entered that kind of a cycle because that would be, I mean, it's a huge job what what was required and, and mm-hmm. basically what was in you know infer you know what was they led to believe that was happening to it. What when in terms of the updates, did you experience many of the improvements that were made and actually released, Tom? Uh, so I, I sort of tracked. It. I never, I didn't get to do the sort of raid type stuff that they teased. Uh, but honestly, like the problems, the deep problems of like the loading times, uh, the fact that you're in three open world areas with some world events and hardly much to do, hardly any dungeons, and the fact that it was sort of like pitched as a Destiny style living game, but there was no way that they could 
you know have the cadence of releases required to be a Warframe or to be a Destiny, um, and just like a load of just promises that get being pushed back and pushed back, and fundamentally just a kind of a, a class system that didn't make for fun co-op. It was like a combo system, which is actually you find in Mass Effect Three multiplayer, and it's actually quite fun. And they kind of seem to have tried to transpose it onto this open world type game, and it just it just didn't work. It just didn't work. Um, and I remember the, like reading some of the kind of uh, post-mortem stuff from like Jason Schreier and um, other other journalists. And uh, there's always there's this phrase, find the fun, which you hear like Blizzard say this as well. Um, find the fun only goes so far when you're spending millions and millions of dollars on uh, hundreds of employees uh, trying to make a game. Like you probably should have found the fun before like much earlier <laughs> in the in the sequence. Um, there, there was hmm. the fun that was meant to have found them. <laughs> Well, it didn't. <laughs> of, of all the attempts I've seen to make like MMOs and living games, um, this is like the deadest living game I've ever, <laughs> I've ever played or tried to follow. It was a real shame because there's loads of like loads of great talent um, at Bioware for writing dialogue. They're just really, just like really good cutscenes with great motion capture. Uh, it looked gorgeous at points when it wasn't kind of like. That the frame rate wasn't crashing. Um, and it had like lovely customization of your mech suit. There's just loads of really nice stuff about it that like audio visually and loads of great artists and really talented concept artists have obviously worked on it. Um, and yeah, it's just, I don't know. This is just like, it's, it's a perennial games industry thing where like so many people put so much effort in and nothing comes out of it at the end. It's just sad. It's just quite depressing, isn't it really? Yeah, and actually, to actually to have heard them say that um, they were going to be, you know, doubling down on all their promises and and, and re revamping it, that would have been a strange decision now because so much time has gone. You know, I don't think that Anthem, even if it had been shored up, or you know, would be shored up in what six months, a year time from now. Mm. This is an old game now. You know, it, it's it, it would never. That would be a. a a, a, a bad business decision because you can't see it ever attracting, re-attracting a player base that's sort of worthy. It's weird because um, I kind of draw parallels between this and Final Fantasy XIV, which uh, I reviewed when it came out and <laughs> stupidly said in the final paragraph that it would never be fixed because <laughs> it was so broken. And then five years later, they literally booted the entire universe, blew up the old universe and relaunched Final Fantasy XIV. And now it's one of the best MMOs in the world. Like, it's just... Yeah, that's actually a very good <laughs> refutation of what... Refutation? Yeah. Refuting of what I just said. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's a really good point. They, they, they told me right off. <laughs> <laughs> they proved me well wrong. And I was I was very happy to be wrong because I've really enjoyed Final Fantasy XIV. I've got friends who absolutely like, love it more than World of Warcraft or any other MMO they've ever played. Apparently it's got really good Final Fantasy storylines, but it did have the Final Fantasy name to kind of fall back on when it did relaunch. Yeah. And that's something that Anthem doesn't have, even with uh, EA's huge marketing budget. And it was it was marketed, look, super intense, intensively marketed as lots of new EA IP would be. Uh, but without Final Fantasy or something like or some bedrock like that, maybe, I don't know, maybe you just don't have the momentum to leave it fallow for four years yeah. and then suddenly pop out with Anthem re-renewed or whatever yeah final fantasy 14 didn't just have the final final fantasy name they also had a prior final fantasy mmo so a lot of those players just went back right. to playing final fantasy 11 or whatever <laughs> and yeah, uh, you yeah. know which is still quite popular today i think it's still going um you know and then came obviously came back around later 
Whereas like any other game that's turned it around after a rocky start, like say Rainbow Six Siege, for example, that came out to really quite poor or middling reviews and a really bad response mm, yeah. from the audience and its its player base was diminishing pretty rapidly and got quite small if you look at the numbers on Steam. Um, they were having regular small updates that turned it around over time rather than going dark for a period of one or two or three years and then coming out mm. with one big update. It was... No, we're going to release lots of little changes and it's still going to suck for a long time, but eventually they'll add up and you'll continue to hear about it constantly because we're working on it constantly and releasing the stuff we're working on. Yeah, you can be assured. Yeah, you, you sort of feel that you know that it's a live thing. Yeah. There was never really, I never felt very confident that um, that there was that active work going on with Anthem. Yeah, those games need a heartbeat, don't they? Um, it reminds me of Warframe, which when it came out, I played it the first sort of builds it and it's pretty bad <laughs> not very good game it's like wow this is just going to sink but what they didn't because they just kept on adding new warframes every few months and then a new level then a new kind of tile set and then new guns and now it's just a kind of crazed montage <laughs> of different ideas and it's, it's uh, unlike anything else in games and that's just, just why we're sort of bolting bits onto this thing over the course of many years consistently and talking to their uh, their their players a lot that's become a huge success. There's another, there's another relevant thing here, and we weren't going to talk about this, but old school RuneScape launched on Steam today. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Which was like launched because RuneScape, it, it, it's just called RuneScape, is commonly thought of as RuneScape Three, and that's it's kind of a World of Warcraft situation where the game changed so much that people wanted what they'd been playing when they originally got into RuneScape when they were 13 years old. And so they launched old school RuneScape, I think in like 2013, and then mm -hmm. have continued to add to it and develop it as a completely separate game. They haven't done the Blizzard thing of just gradually relaunching expansions in the same order they, they did 10, 15 years ago. They've just developed it as if it's, it's completely on thing. And so it's got a big player base. In fact, I think something like 2019, I think they said, was the biggest year ever for that game. Yeah, you know, yeah. including all the years when it was massively popular in the early 2000s. Um, and it was it, the old school is is more popular than the new school, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm I'm glad of it though because um, that um, the company is owned by a kind of an asset kind of investment unit which i don't know i'm slightly worried about what might happen to them if 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 they didn't keep making bank well there's lots of lawsuits around that isn't there because they just got bought by a different asset company and an, and a, a third chinese asset company came in and said you can't sell them we own them <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's now there's now like a legal fight about whether whether the company that sold Jagex actually had the rights to sell Jagex. That's that's frightening. Yeah. Good stuff. Mm. Um there's we should also talk, shouldn't we, about the um the, the, the Blizzard news, because uh, it was uh, BlizzCon uh earlier this week or the weekend. Weekend, wasn't it? Mm. it was. Uh Diablo three resurrection. Oh no, Diablo yeah, 2 Resurrection. I'm going to get confused with my numbers because because everything that is old is always new again these days. Um, yeah, Diablo 2 uh, Resurrection, which looks heck of fun, or at least it's the old game, but kind of 
revamped and, and looking actually that's a really nice kind of remaster look to it 3d oh, yeah but still jerky and kind of old in you know that just has that uh sprighty look which i always liked yep they um i'm gonna preface this by saying uh, come to rps like tomorrow <laughs> or the next day or by the time this is out because i've got a lot of write-up to do about this and one of the things they've done is that they almost uh they traced over the original 2d art and then produced 3d models based on that which is why a lot of the the gear is like one-to-one looks correct and actually they've actually got more um art variety in the weapons and the armor because uh there was much more variety in the 2d art than there was in the 3d sorry the, the sprite art that was actually shown on screen if that makes sense does that make sense um so you'd have a class yes. of knives you'd have a class of knives and uh, the knife in the hand of your necromancer would look the same for about i don't know maybe like 10 20 different items but the yes the inventory art for each of them would be a bit different so they could actually it was cheaper to produce the inventory art but they've actually managed to take the inventory art and produce 3d models based on that huh. so yeah it's uh it's going to be like it's really going to be really really faithful um one of the things that i was very interested to ask them was about like how online works because famously diablo 2 you could just cheat the fuck out of it you could <laughs> you could break it down uh i had my, my mate george and he had a barbarian and he had a skill that let him uh dual wield two-handed weapons one in each hand um, and he found just an incredible one. And then he just went to the save files and copied and pasted it. And then he had two of them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was like, George, what the hell are you doing? Um, and he taught us all how to do it. And it's like, oh my God, we've had the game. Uh, so yeah, the, the, that meant the loot system was kind of, uh, had zero online integrity in any sort of like competitive context. And that's one of the things that really rubbed people up the wrong way in, with Diablo 3, with it being always online. Uh, is that suddenly there was a kind of, and with having a marketplace, and suddenly, oh, no, we've applied free market economics to Diablo loot, when it was previously it had been a kind of just wild west. You could just get anything if you wanted to. And that was kind of freedom I think people missed with the online, the always online thing. Um, so the good news is that Diablo 2 Resurrected, you'll be able to play that offline. It's going to have uh, co op, obviously, and, but it also will have PvP, which was notoriously notoriously broken <laughs> in terms of like the, there was just no balance at all <laughs> which is actually again part of the charm of the game a lot of the games kind of what you might look at if you're looking at the game as an online game you say oh we need to balance all this up but i think with diablo you just don't have to do that and that's one of the things that i kind of worry a bit about for diablo 4 which is also going to be always online like diablo 3 was is actually going to introduce more and more online elements so uh that means blizzard has to really just take to go to great lengths to preserve the integrity of the loot system uh, and not allow people to copy and paste great swords <laughs> uh, that do thousands of damage. Um, so it's going to be an interesting tr- trade-off. It's going to be interesting to see to what extent Diablo 2 Resurrected cannibalizes Diablo 4. I think that what, what's going to happen is Diablo 2 Resurrected will be out years before Diablo 4 and they'll sort of use it as a stepping stone to introduce people to the, the next chapter of the series. And they're going to have to do that because I think a lot of people would probably play Diablo 2 before Diablo 4. Um, so but I can't wait to see how the community reacts to it. There's a constant discussion at RPS about whether Diablo 2 or Diablo 3 is better and which one do you recommend to people? Yeah. Like if you're telling them to go play a game right now in 2021 and our, the current winner within the team is Diablo 2 is the one that you should still mm. go back to. 
When did when did uh, any of the voters last play Diablo two? Because I played it within the last year or so, and I didn't play very much of it because it's brutal. Like yeah, I mean, I know that you can kind of kind of mess around with it uh, once you're at high levels, but as a new player to it, oh, it you know, a death means being sent a long way back. It's mm. a it's pretty brutal. There's some really good mods for it, though. I'm trying to... Um, there's one which just basically speeds everything up by about 200%. It makes everything about you know 10 times as powerful. It's almost <laughs> like a sort of blitz speedrun version of the game. I'll, I'll, I'll Google around and try and find the name of this for the show notes. Because um, it, it, that's that's a brilliant thing that you have about Diablo 2, is that you can actually just go into the, its innards and make it what you want it to be. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to action RPGs... Uh, this is, a, this is a bad word, isn't it? Game feel. Is that a bad word? I don't know. The weather, game feel's good. Yeah, that's right. Let's use it. All right, game feel then. Uh, hitting a zombie, a 2D sprite hitting a 2D sprite in Diablo 2 doesn't compare to shattering a 3D thing that just jibs across the environment. Mm. Uh, and I think there's, let's not underestimate the flair and, you know, the 3D modern engines can bring to the moment-to-moment violence of that genre. Uh, and that's true too of uh, a lot of the other great action RPGs, like even uh, Path of Exile and stuff like that. Um, actually, Path of Exile is probably the biggest um, competitor to Diablo 2 Resurrected, I think. And that's an interesting game because it is always online, but it has such a huge loot pool that you wouldn't even want to mess with it. And it's also got gem socketing up up your ass and just like just so much stuff like that, that you, yeah. you do to customize your character. And it's free. Uh, you could you only ever pay for cosmetics if you want to like have your crown on fire or something like that. Like everything else is a huge amount of game there. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how Diablo 2 Resurrected slots into that environment as well. Like where the good always online action RPG. Yeah, oh, it's going to be good. I mean, I'll, I'll play the, both to death, no doubt. I'll be a skeleton <laughs> at the end. Just <laughs> <laughs> <It's> be me. <laughs> you got to play Diablo while you're riding on your Peloton bike. That's, oh my, oh my <laughs> god is, there's money to be made there oh that's a good idea actually <laughs> and so it's also diablo immortals which is going to be the mobile version which i'm kind of curious about as well uh because yeah, it got a terrible reception when it was very 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 first shown and that was like quite a long time ago but i didn't really see why there was much upset about it well i think it's because it was a bit like because everyone just wanted Diablo Four like at the yeah, time. Yeah. Wasn't it? And it's it's like when Valve announced uh, the card game <laughs> artifact, yeah. and there's like, oh, there's a new Dota thing, and everyone's like, whoa, what could it be? Could it be like Dota two point um, And then it's like, oh, it's a collectible card game, and it's really complicated. <laughs> uh, and there's a uh, quite um, unfortunate footage like when they revealed it. I think at the international, and the, the whole crowd just goes. Boo! <laughs> <laughs> Just brutally crawl about it. No, that was a good game. Um, that's another game that's gone away that I, I'm looking forward to seeing how Valve rebuilds that as well. <laughs> about, um, lots of chat about dead, dead, and you know, Phoenix games that are rising from the ashes today. So well, there's Phoenix another one. one. There's oh, another one. Huh. Uh, Days Gone, which is uh, uh, so Sony uh, has recommitted or or continued its commitment to um, releasing games on um, on PC. Uh, PlayStation games on PC and Days Gone, which is a PlayStation 4 game about an angry man on a motorcycle uh, making friends with zombies. 
uh, um, is uh, has been announced that it's coming to to PC, which is another dead game about dead things. Uh, <laughs> I'm not remotely interested in Days Gone and, and never was, but I'm definitely into uh, the idea of Sony, <laughs> this platform holder, uh, ha- being very, very happy just to release uh, its games on PC simply because apparently for them it isn't much of a hassle. And so why mm. the heck not? Uh, you know, get the extra money. You know, the the, the PC owners are going to pay for for those games. That's yeah. nice. Yeah, get 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 Shadow of the Colossus out there. You know, get yeah, get all their first party games. That'd be that'd be awesome. Yeah, this is off the back of Horizon Zero Dawn coming to PC last yeah. year, mm, and yeah. and Sony saying they they felt that that was a, a success. It sold well. There wasn't a huge adverse reaction from Sony fans that this previously exclusive game was coming to PC um, but yeah Days Gone doesn't seem very interesting I would like I'd like the Spider-Man game please I want to swing around a big city mm. yeah right I like that game it was, it was good. It was... but that would be I mean you mentioned Shadow of the Colossus uh, Tom like would they ever do a game like that which is just so PlayStation-y you know is that what where does this this concept go for for Sony? Would they ever take things that have become associated with the brand as opposed to because Zero Horizon Dawn is a very good 3D game. Like it, it, it was a totally uh exclusive to um to PlayStation until that surprise announcement that it was coming to PC. Um, but I wouldn't have said that's an archetypal PC uh, PS4 game, PlayStation game. But when you bring those those iconic ones, uh, you know, Shadow of the Colossus. What are the What are the other ones? <laughs> I was going to say, Last what Guardian. are the other ones? Other than I- Ico and Last Guardian. Yeah, yeah. Other than those three, yeah. which are made by the same team, what are the other like actually iconic or inseparable from? They've kind of shied away from them, haven't they? Well, th- what I think, I, th- all of those games would ha- have the sort of like reputation of indie darlings on PC. I think they'd fit right in to PC gaming, uh, all of them. Uh, so I, yeah. I think I think they'd be huge curiosity. And it's also a great way of preserving a game like Ico, and also opening it up to modders who could like, you know, do whatever they wanted with it. They'd find a way. Um, and also, there's been so many kind of articles and kind of investigations and community effort with Shadow of the Colossus to find secrets because that world is so open and enticing, but also so empty that people think there must be, you know. There must be secrets in there somewhere, and you know that PC gamers just going to tear that apart. Go into the go into the maps, go to the, you know every corner of the world, and uh, and find any secrets that might be there. I don't They'll think ruin it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's old though, isn't it? If it's old, you can ruin it. That's the rule. <laughs> so I mean, obviously, obviously, the kind of like the the grand hope is um, Bloodborne. I mean, that's oh yeah. yeah. And I I'm I'm going to stand. I'm going to I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to say. I reckon Bloodborne will be on PC within the next year and a half. Oh, uh, listeners. It's been said. No doubt. Note that it's been said. I'd, <laughs> I'd love that. Also, I think like genuinely the performance is a bit spotty on PS4. Right. Uh, and I think that as a combat game, I love it. But I think just at 60 frames, it would yeah. be really, really good. It would be <laughs> even better. Designed. Exactly. Um, and like, look at, look at Sekiro. Oh, so good on PC. It's just, oh. I, I, I'm not normally a frame rate wanker, but 
for these games, I think it really does improve, like the way the game feels and how responsive it is in a combat situation. I think is essential to the, the quality of the game. Um, so I think I totally that'd be, agree. That'd be lovely. I don't think it's going to happen. Not in that timeline, anyway. Like one of the things mm. Jim Ryan talked about was they see this as a way of growing the audience for the game. So they did Zero Dawn because they've got a new Horizon game coming out, and this is a bunch of new people that have played the first that might consider the. The buying the sequel so i think the next game you'll get after days gone will be like god of war ahead of the release of the sequel oh, yeah. and that sort of stuff that makes sense oh it's big daddy sensible speaks again <laughs> no that's true i really i did enjoy god of war though i really enjoyed it love hacking those what? skeletons up don't you i am um, <laughs> what, what is it about skeletons tom i just i just i mean hurrah for skeleton I just, uh, I just, I will always love a good skeleton and the, the noise they make when you <laughs> when you bash them. Uh, though I did get to trouble on Twitter. I, I, I got owned on Twitter when I, um, I was celebrating the fact that Kratos could use his uh, amazing axe that returns to his hand, fantastically designed game mechanic, which feels amazing. Um, but you could use it to just like eviscerate seagulls that were just in the environment, yeah. and they would just like literally explode when they, <laughs> like, they there was a bespoke <laughs> animation for hitting them with the, the axe <laughs> from afar. Um, and then I got a tweet from someone who was just like, actually, seagulls have been driven from their natural habitat on the coasts, and that's why they're everywhere. And they're not actually scum. They're just like, just, uh, please have some empathy for these. these <laughs> and I was like, no, <laughs> no. What's a homing axe for if I can't throw it at a distant seagull and watch them? But you're just... meant to do it at the crows, though, aren't you? So yeah, what, oh, that too, them too. But, you know, it's, it's because Bath is played by seagulls. So it's a kind of quite cathartic yeah. revenge fantasy. Uh, <laughs> in addition to the, the deep Norse mythology that they're trying to evoke. Yes, for everyone else, it was a, a, a dad adventure for you. It was, it was like seagull revenge. <laughs> That's right. Let's clean this place out. Um, don't at me. <laughs> I'll get so many tweets. I'm enjoying Twitter these days. Good. Oh, how did I get onto that? What What have you been playing, Graham? I've been playing Voyage, um, which I'd never heard of until it came out on Steam this past week. But Voyage is a one or two player game in which you push right for a long time and walk through an exceptionally pretty series of landscapes. It's It's got some very light puzzling in it. Um, and that there are like, I mean, when I say light puzzling, I mean light puzzling. Like there is usually in any given area, there will be a handful of interactive objects. And usually it's either a block you can push or pull, maybe to put it into position so you can climb to a, to a higher platform. Sometimes there's just some buttons and you just have to press all four buttons in the environment in order to progress, uh, and that's it. But the idea is that you know, if you were doing this cooperatively, you know, when you climb up a block, maybe you've got to punt up your co-op partner, and then they've got to reach down and hoist you up. I didn't play it cooperatively. I just played it on my lonesome, uh, in which case it's just like the AI you're working with. And so in terms of like your interaction with it, and I, I, don't, have, I don't have a problem with games that are, are light, in terms of interaction, but this is a bit monotonous. But it's only two hours long, and it's fucking gorgeous. Basically, it's um, mm -hmm. it's telling a wordless story. I mean, this is the this is so that was the first kick. The interaction is a bit monotonous. That was the first kick. My second kick is that it feels like it's turned up two hours late after the end of the journey party, and that this like you're kind of walking through 
sort of abandoned landscapes, looking at runes carved into the walls to try and work out what the story is. Uh, and I'll be honest. Who were these ancient people? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and why did they carve geometric signs into these walls? <laughs> yeah. Only John Blow knows. <laughs> Uh, it, and like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's a particularly strong way to <laughs> engage me in a story. And I played this two-hour-long game, couldn't really fucking tell you what the story is <laughs> for the vast mm. majority of it. It's, it, it has a sort of feeling though, like a, it's kind of like Limbo or Inside for for care bears or studio ghibli fans or moomin fans because there it is like that pushing right sort of weighty platformy movement as you're sliding down hills and climbing up things um but each environment as well as just being really pretty to look like look at is very atmospheric um filled with little creatures and little spirit men that are wandering through forests while raindrops pitter-patter across a rippling lake. Um, strange ghost-like boatmen that will help you sail across lakes. It's And the music in it is gorgeous as well. It's by a guy called Callum Bowen. Um, who releases music under the name Bowen, and he does really great upbeat gamey theme music for like stuff like Piku Niku, that um, fun over the top platform game from a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, and his music in this is really great as well. And it's it's just it's so striking some of the visuals. There's a mo- there's uh, there's a point in it in which you are exploring a spaceship, but the spaceship is just bright bubblegum pink look all the insides of it and the holes of it the palette in the game is great like it's you're going through across a a series of different alien planets or different locations on a single alien planet i'm not actually sure um but the color usage uh, in those different scenes and these different landscapes is it's really interesting and you know it's it's, really restrained palette isn't it it's just it's just mm. a few colors and they are Choices you wouldn't have, well would never have thought would work as together as beautifully as they do. Yeah, like that kind of like you'll be in that kind of um, rainy, watery forest scene, but then there'll just be like a daub of purple on a hillside in the background in a way that shouldn't work, but absolutely does, because uh, all the environments are hand painted and all the animation is is obviously hand drawn and stuff like that as well. So it's. But it's, it took me about, I would say, probably a little bit under two hours to complete. I think it's like 10 or 15 pounds. And, you know, I, I, I have problems with it, but I would absolutely recommend it to anyone. And, like, you, Alex, I know you played a bit of it. Do you feel similarly? Yeah, very similarly. Although I, I got, I'm, <laughs> it's very simple, but I'm, I got stuck twice. <laughs> I'm currently stuck. <laughs> trying to push a box and it won't go any further. <laughs> I don't know what stopped it. Um, and I can't go, I just, something's blocking and I just can't walk any further. It might be a bug, but it's um, odd. I didn't, This is you know, you mentioned that um, it's sort of dialogueless. Um, there is nothing to tell you how it works, like nothing to even tell you what the buttons do. It's quite generous with the control schemes. You can play it with purely with your mouse. With the keyboard, and I believe there's some um, gamepad um, 
support as well, which I haven't used. Um, but it, I found it totally inscrutable at the start because um, you were in this room and I just didn't know what to do. You press one button and and it kind of a chime starts and then other things on the screen also chime. Another one is interact, but you've kind of got to hold it down in the right place with your character in the right place to, for it to work. Um, there's also a kind of, <laughs> you didn't realize what one of the buttons was, but I lat- latterly did, which is um, you can, you know, when you're playing on your own as, as opposed to uh, with another player in co-op, uh, you can get the AI character to stop. You can get them to stay where they are. Um, I managed to walk off with my two characters into the darkness, not knowing what to do on the very first screen. And it, the game lets you just keep walking, walking, walking into the darkness. So I went for, I don't know, nearly a minute <laughs> thinking, what's going to happen? <laughs> uh, and um, um, during that journey, I'd obviously pressed the button that that, that dis, disengaged, you know, sort of un, you know, unjoined my characters, walked back into the light uh, with what it turned out to be one character, and then had to switch to the other one. That's what the fourth button does. Switches your um your kind of use your, your, the character that you're controlling to the the other one, and then had to walk a, a minute again back into the light with the other character. But yeah, like you, Graham, I thought that the visuals are just plenty to uh, keep me playing. I do want to finish it because it's short and yeah, it is stunning. I I that button that separates your two characters. I thought that was just. That you could do hand signals to your co-op partner, so like if you want to, if you were like playing with a co-op partner and you wanted to signal to them, hey, look at this or go there or something like that, that that was what that button did. Because when you press it, your character holds up a hand or like points. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize at that point that it was telling the other <laughs> the AI person stop now and never move ever again. I am abandoning you on this planet. So long. Uh, <laughs> and and that thing where you can walk off into the darkness for a really long time and it doesn't stop you. There are other points in the game where you basically do have to do that, where you're walking through an oh, environment no. and it will either this the screen will be covered in white and it will be completely white, you can't see anything because you're walking through like a, a cloud or something like that, or it's just completely dark for a moment and you have to keep pushing for a surprisingly long time before you re-emerge. And it, it kind of works, but it, it is obviously, you know, it's kind of training you to do a thing that in other instances, no, that's not what you should do. <laughs> Actually, you should be pushing that big stone over there that in no way looks like it can be pushed. I noticed it was um, uh, first shown off on TigSource um, in, way back in uh, 2019, um, uh, which would make it in development for at least five years, you know, hmm? coming to six years at the very least. 2019, you um, said. <laughs> no, uh, 2015, yeah, 2015. Did I, did I say, I previously said 2019, yeah, no, 2015. And, um, uh, uh, and the screenshots that they shared were f- like almost identical of that um, area with the murals that you've got to light up you know, that sort of beautifully, like with the patter of rain and things. Yeah. After it was when you're going on the boat. Uh, and it looked pretty much the same. Like I, it might be they had to leave it and come back to it. Because uh, I think it's made by two brothers. Yeah, uh, and, I, w- I didn't know they were brothers. But yeah, it's, it's just by two people. And yeah. other than the musician. Yeah. 
I hope it does well for them though, because I'd love for them to do more stuff. Basically, like these kinds of projects, I imagine are hard, hard to make, hard to get funding for, hard to finish. Um, but it it looks so incredible that I hope they get to do more stuff together. Yeah, definitely. What have you been playing, Alex? Uh, I I'm I'm sorry to say that um, I've been playing on my mister a bit more although actually i'm going to talk about a game that isn't on mister uh, but i'm going to talk about the journey i took to get to the game um uh, the mister is this um i've been banging on about it too much and i won't i really won't talk about it for too long but it's this um uh emulation basically uh box that was sort of just plays old stuff very very nicely um uh you can refer to our older podcasts for more on that. But on there, I've been playing um, old shooters. I never really played um, scrolling shooters very much, like shoot 'em up shops, uh, very much uh, in the past. And I've sort of taken it on to to kind of just get more familiar with them. So I've been playing uh, stuff like Aleste on um, on kind of NES and Super Nintendo. Uh, I've been playing. Uh, uh, Lots of uh, turbo graphics or PC Engine shooters, um, uh, like Blazing Lasers and Spriggan and stuff like that, um, and really enjoying the the kind of the breadth of expression in this kind of quite what's quite a, like a genre which is very defined and kind of enjoying the fact that there are these very different flavors. I kind of noticed there are sort of three different kinds of flavors of, of shooters. Um, they were kind of like these. Gradius style, um, quite precise shooters, which are about taking tactical, you know, playing carefully, but taking quite tactical decisions over how you play. Because that one, in that one, your power ups, um, they come along, but then you invest the power ups very specifically into certain. Uh, um, uh, they kind of act as a currency to to kind of buy a second a laser or uh, a missile um, shooting out uh, or extra speed and things like that, which may or may not be appropriate to the level you're playing on. Um, so you kind of you know good choices are uh, what that game is about, quite precise. And then there are these games like Total Excess where these power ups come and you know you're kind of discovering sort of these incredible combinations of screen filling kind of lasers and branching out of you and homing missiles coming out of you and there are enemies coming down at you and the the whole screen is alight with explosions and you're kind of dodging through stuff and it's just this excess kind of going on and and part of the game is when you've found a nice kind of conjunction of power-ups uh you kind of try to avoid any other power-ups which will cancel out what you've got for something else um things that you know Aleste is a bit like that and blazing lasers they're really fun sort of sort of things uh Another of the games that are on the, is on there uh, is the arcade version of uh, Dodonpachi, which is a cave shooter that came out at the end of the 90s. Um, and this game was one of the early, uh, what's called, we sort of called bullet hells. They're about these great flowering patterns of pink bullets just spreading all over the screen. And, and your ship has a fabulously small hitbox, um, but it's still very easy to get hit. And kind of your job is to to get through uh, these kind of patterns, but also uh, you're you're not really picking up power ups particularly. You're uh, you've, you've got more or less one shot type, which might over, well, generally upgrade over time. Um, and that is the game that I've been playing on PC, uh, which is a, a a game that came out a couple of years after Dead on Patchy by 
same developer cave called uh, Mushihimisama, which is which is which is uh uh it's about beetles and stuff <laughs> so rather than spaceships and kind of and kind of helicopters and blowing stuff up uh, blowing stuff up in uh this is about blowing chitin off and watching kind of ica explode um where like dodonpachi is oranges and yellows and reds of explosions and kind of and sort of fire and, and all that kind of thing uh mushihimisama is is about uh purples and greens and things like that and the screen just fills up with these kind of just ica basically it's just so good um uh so yeah this is a it's a bullet hell game um scrolling shooter vertical shooter um and i'm trying to get good at it uh and I got a high score yesterday. I managed to make on a, I'm really bad at all these games still, but I managed to get uh, on a single credit through to the into like midway through the third uh, level, which is which is good for me. That's a good a cool two million points that I got from that. This is trash compared to anybody who's any good at the game. Like you watch people playing who are good at it, and it's just absurdly. Um, well, actually. Hmm. I was about to say that kind of they're absur- absurdly um, skilled, which they totally are. But it can be really hard to tell in these games because um, um, you watch a good player play, and you can't. They kind of languidly sweep from one side of the screen to the other, and one back and forth. And you do see them dodging bullets carefully. You know, you can see these moments of incredible precision. Um, as they're kind of dancing between these patterns of, of kind of usually boss bullets. But um, the rest of the time, um, it looks like they're just going from one side of the screen to the other. And I actually got a playthrough, and this is actually on Don Patchy. I got a playthrough of the first level um, and tried to take on, like, you can, like, there's, there's like a four hour playthrough because they kept stopping the video and explaining what they're doing. It's totally fascinating to me. But they would explain that they're going from one side to the other. And I tried doing that as impossible. I just couldn't, could not do it and achieve what they were doing, which is essentially chaining uh, hits. Uh, Don Apache um, is very much about, uh, to get high scores, is very much about keeping a chain of hits. Um, you've got to just keep hitting enemy things uh, in order to keep this massive score bonus that you'll build over time. Um, if you stop hitting stuff for more than about a second, uh, you'll just lose your bonus completely. Um, and the levels are designed such that you can just about keep this bonus going for most of the level. I think there are maybe two or three breakpoints that you can't avoid, but the rest of the time they're able to chain stuff together. I could not do this at all. I could not move from left to right and back again while also hitting stuff. Um, there are these kind of subtleties of not only movement, but also firing. Um, these, both Misha Misama and Dodon Apache have the same control system, which is three buttons. Um, one button is uh, shooting all of your kind of uh, sort of uh, machine gunny kind of bullets up the screen uh, in a kind of kind of wide pattern. Um, and you press it once and your one, one kind of salvo will blow out. The middle one is you hold it down and uh, you'll concentrate your fire. Actually, no, no, the middle one, sorry, is bomb. 
I'll take them back to the bottom in a sec. Uh, and uh, the third button is you hold it down and a concentrated gout of uh, beam will come out of the front of your thing and go straight up the screen. And that usually penetrates enemies and is your most dangerous, you know, most damaging uh, bullet. But it will usually slow you down. It will slow your ship down so you're less able to move um, delicate, you know, sort of quickly to avoid hits. Uh, you play it by essentially holding down the beam, but then holding down the the kind of like the normal fire button uh, to kind of to, to move quicker. That's kind of the way I've kind of started using it. The bomb, meanwhile, isn't really for damaging enemies. I mean, it does damage enemies. It does wipe out stuff, but mostly it cancels bullets. That's what it's for. It's like this get out of jail kind of card. And nobody who is any good at the game ever uses their bomb because... <laughs> Because in Dead on Patchy, it will instantly clear your entire bonus. Monsieur Hibisar is a bit more, uh, a bit kinder than that. You do, you're like it'll just reduce the the bonus, but um, and that is that is it. But like just the intricacy of the game is just extraordinary, and the ability for people to find routes through this what looks like this just insane kind of. Uh, totally arbitrary barrage of enemies coming at you you know it has been designed with with total intention and people find it and learning it and getting to know to play it i found just it's just it's mesmerizing and one more goey and it helps the just the game feel as, as you put it tom it's just beautiful like the sound effects and the icker and just the way things explode it's just incredibly satisfying just just to just to blow shit up <laughs> um one of the the third level on Mushia Masima Mushia Himesama uh 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 starts out normally but sooner uh, soon you'll find yourself flying above some enormous insect which has multiple eyes eyes just all over his carapace and they just sightlessly kind of more unfocusedly just staring up at you and for all of this part of the level you're just blowing the mother living fuck out of its kind of carapace steadily working your way up and the whole screen is just filled with either bits of huge chunks of carapace kind of blowing up other chunks of carapace taking damage and therefore flashing you've got enemies flying around all the place there are these bright pink bullets sailing towards you in these beautiful parabolas like holy fuck like i've got so much respect for that game i'll never be good at it um but i'm really enjoying getting to know it and just appreciating this vast uh genre of what the, what looks from the outside really samey like mechanically mushi himisama is very similar to don Pachi and very similar to a lot of other um bullet hell games i love the tiny differences, um, they're crafted so beautifully. Yeah, it's been really nice. I always really, I, I love hearing about these games and I love reading about these <clears throat> games, but whenever I try to play them, I find the shooting really satisfying, the explosions really impressive, and then I die. And I'm like, yeah. ah, okay, no, I'll, I'll try two or three or four more times and I will die so quickly each time that I find my enthusiasm wanes quite quickly. Do you think you need to be a particular type of person in order to enjoy these games? Like, do you, do you think it's a mindset thing that you just need to have that 
urge to better your score, urge to beat the system and like improve and overcome that hardship? Yeah. Yes, I do. Um I think I think it it's about I think it's about going in with an like it's definitely going in with an intention helps a lot. Like I've definitely been you until now about shooters. I think that one thing that I've made myself do, I think the, the the killer to these games for me has always been because you know these are arcade games, they were designed for the arcade, and therefore when they're made free play, when you buy it on Steam, um, you know, you'll you'll start the game, uh, you'll kind of go through your first credit, you'll sort of die three times, um, and you'll continue. And from that point, and you'll continue, you'll beat level one. You'll then be on, you know, you've, by this point, you'll have kind of continued 15 times, you know, I don't know, 10 times. You're going to level two, you'll continue another 15 times, level three, and you'll just die and die and die and die, but you'll continue going because the, because the continue system just allows you to continue, you know, from that point that you died. Um, and it feels pointless. Like you're seeing the same thing. You're not appreciating any art in in the the way the levels kind of work and how they've been designed because you're just blasting and then dying um i forced myself to not continue like i did i did did do a full run at the start and felt that same weightless kind of point just felt a bit dirty having done it i'm forcing myself just to play one credit and 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 that concentrates my mind in the way that you know when you when you force yourself to do a challenge in most games you know suddenly shit's got real and it's become mm. a bit more interesting you know the reward of of doing less is actually greater than if it was if i'd gotten to the end of the game but continued you know as many times as it took to do that i think that that has definitely helped me um i think i think that for, for i'm going to speak for myself here like i've come into this with an understanding of where this game came from so i'm just inherently kind of slightly academically interested in it as well i'm interested in why why do people like it it obviously works for people so why does you know sort of what do they see in it so i'm kind of forcing myself a little bit but not very much um i think the last thing is um and i don't have a last thing that was it. <laughs> <laughs> they were good things. I don't think you need any more things. I'm not. I'm not a mass. I'm not a very competitive person, and I know that. And I think that um, you know, I, I've I had a good go, and then I listened and watched a few things about people talking about it and watching them play and thinking, oh god, the skill ceiling is really high. I'm not going to be able to do that, but I'm going to be satisfied with just getting a bit better, and you know, um, and you know just playing it on my own terms i'm not particularly competitive as i said so and i'm not particularly score as hacky but it is nice to feel that that my score is going up i mean your score goes up for two different reasons like one you get your score goes up further if you survive for longer but you're also your score will go up higher if you um try to chain better so you can actually set yourself the personal challenge of simply i i don't need to have you know not died on on the first stage but if i can chain up until that point i'll be succeed and it helps actually the Mashima uh has a really nice um uh score display thing where it will show you the 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 high score from the stage that you're on as well as the high score overall so you can see how you've 
how you your current run is is comparing against your you know your best run on that particular stage which is good as well the continue thing is a really good tip because like spelunky was a thing i got into because of the daily challenge because it it gave it stakes and oftentimes i enjoyed spelunky best when i would just do the daily challenge and then stop for the day i think these games these are games i would probably enjoy more if i didn't think oh i'm gonna i'm gonna play this game now for two hours if i instead thought i'm gonna play this game for 10 minutes and then imagine that my i've run out of quarters or whatever and i'll come back on my commute home tomorrow and play another 10 minutes you know that sort of thing yeah yeah i don't think this is a game that i mean i think i'm sure there are people you know, people who are generally very good at it that can sit down for hours and play it. I, I've been playing it in 20-minute bursts and then come back 20 minutes. It's not a demanding game in the sense that it takes lots of time. So you can just have a bash and then leave it. I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it and probably give up, but I'll try it. <laughs> it sounds cool. <laughs> to bang on about Ikaruga again, which I actually mentioned last week or the week before. Um, another amazing game, which has like deep layers of skill to it, even though it has like such a beautifully basic rule set, which yeah. is that there, there are light, dark, light bullets, there are dark bullets, and your ship could be light polarity or dark polarity. And if you're a dark polarity, you absorb dark bullets. If you're light polarity, you absorb light bullets. Um, and that's it. That's pretty much it. You do double damage yeah. to enemies of the opposite polarity. Um, and if you... And the chain system is about killing things in sequences of three, multiples of three. So you could kill nine white enemies, then three black enemies, then uh, six white enemies, and then 12 white enemies. And that chain will keep building and building. But uh, if you clear certain rounds quickly enough, you actually extra waves will spawn. So there are hidden secret little bits that you can sort of pull into the game um, the more efficient you are. Um, and I'd recommend anyone just watching pro like not pro but i mean just amazing incredible runs of ikaruga because uh, it's an absolutely beautiful game as well like these games are oh, it's gorgeous still yeah and I, yeah so i i totally forgot about because i i did play ikaruga when it came out on gamecube in the yeah yeah that's where i played 2000s ever it was and i could i could fully chain the first stage yeah i could yeah i could get to the end of the first stage and do a complete like threes and threes and threes and threes i kind of and then it kind of collapsed in the second stage it wasn't a great chain like i would miss out loads of stuff that good players would do hmm. but then yeah uh i i sorry i have i in this spurt of playing shooters i've um i did try it again on pc it's a, it's a really good port gorgeous it is really good port and these moments of um that bit uh at the in the thing it's in the second stage where the the ship just flips up towards the camera camera mm. then follows them down into this kind of into this machine with these doors kind of clunking open and then close behind them like it's is so so good uh i'm fucking shit at it <laughs> can't do it's, anything it's that really I need to hard do. it's really hard <laughs> it's because it, it, again there are no power-ups like all of your abilities are with you at the very start of the game and yeah there's nothing you don't pick up anything at all do you there's there's nothing it's it's such a pure rule set and you think oh well how how much harder could it get once you've watched someone do a single player run through of it and just chained everything to death and just beautifully eviscerated every boss then what you do is you go to youtube and you search for um co-ops solo co-op runs which is (laughs) and uh in so it'll probably be like korea or japan somewhere 
and you'll see there'll be someone and they'll have like a hand on each stick and they will play two co-op ships manipulating <laughs> the entire game and getting just extraordinary scores and never dying and it's just it's just it's just what give me your brain give me your brain <laughs> i want i want the kind of like the brain that will be able to handle all of that information uh, it's, it's spectacular even if you never buy the game it's well worth watching that stuff because it's so so good uh ikaruga is um it's most horrendous it traps you inside the machines that spin around you and shut you in and you're dodging and changing your polarity all the time as you're moving through these structures and uh, like punching through bits of them to eventually escape and get a really big slow motion explosion. It's extraordinary. Great game. <laughs> what have play- you been playing this week though, Tom? Oh, I've been playing um, uh, Lair of the Clockwork God from well. Size 5 games, formerly Zombie Cow games, I think. Yeah. This is the third in a series uh, that started with Ben There, Dan That, which I think was a free adventure game in free. And uh, it was followed by Time, Gentlemen, Please. And th- these are both, uh, they're both very good adventure games in their own right, but also had a, a very particular um, kind of, uh, mm, I'm going to say postmodern. I'm going to say postmodern. Let's do it. Let's get into it. Uh, yeah, so it, it's a very, very aware of games. Like, and, and it really rewards people who have played a lot of games, lots of in-jokes. Uh, it's also like trying to deconstruct a lot of the kind of conventions of the genres that it's trying to, that it, it's actually you're playing through um and what's cool about lair of the clockwork god is that uh you've got ben and you've got dan you can switch between them and ben is an adventurer who refuses to even hop up the smallest step he refuses to push a single crate or a single box um but he will combine anything with anything for, for very silly reasons uh, as, as the adventurer of the party and then you've got dan who's this kind of small uh kind of simian, <laughs> big-handed, uh, fast Mario boy who uh, runs everywhere <laughs> and, uh, and dump, jumps and double jumps. And he is, he's the platformer, and he, but he refuses to even flip a switch. And he, he, he moves really quickly, but then you switch back to Ben and he walks at an absolute snail's pace as he kind of like observes the environment. Um, and it's, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed it recently. It's been on sale recently, which is why I've, I've actually finally bought it. Because I've really enjoyed the... Um, the Ben and Dan games, uh, because they were always like pretty well observed if you're kind of in the club. And I think that is kind of an interesting thing to examine about this type of game where if you're like, if you played loads and loads of games and you know all the conventions, then you get loads and loads of jokes. But what I find really positive about Lair of the Clockwork God is that even though there's like cynicism to it and there's some like, a lot of sarcasm and stuff, it, it's deeply affectionate for the games it's talking about. It really is like, um, so uh, you kind of like you'll be playing as Ben the adventurer, and you'll be in a museum with things on pedestals, and then one of the pedestals is like a, a cube rotating, and he looks at it and says, "Whoa, I I wouldn't even know what, how to put my hands on that thing," and it's, it's and you realize, oh, it's a Fez reference. That's lovely. Um, just a oh. big point, completely pointless little thing in the background that you, you could choose to look at or not, um, and it, it like the references run so so deep that if you've played loads of loads of games it's, it's super rewarding uh and it's kind of just a little sort of treasure trove it's really quite it's uh, it's really loving like it's kind of uh, an ode to all these all these games even while ben uh, the character of ben is that he's, qu- he's quite sardonic and you know he's he's annoyed at the fact that platformers have taken over and the fact that platformers can be all meaningful now and uh there's there seems to be some like uh 
not quite precise digs that Thomas was alone, but that type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, which, to be honest, I, I, I appreciate it greatly. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's never mean. And I think that's the thing that I missed about. Um, so they, they did, um, was it Rise of the Kickman? They did a sort of football um, parody. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Which I didn't, I, I didn't get along with at all because I just found it to be like, I mean, it's like lots of people love football and football's great. I love football. <laughs> There's actually lots to it. <laughs> and it kind of seems to be mocking. Um, whereas with this, you get the sense that the writers and everyone who made it completely understands the subject matter so well, they managed to actually kind of take the mick out of stuff, but with a sense of, with a positive sense. Uh, and the fact that, you know, uh, the cynicism is ring fenced to uh, Ben's character in particular, the adventurer, and he's kind of you know a bit stuck up. He's a bit you know uh, he's very old school. That's his whole character. So you could bury all those jokes in that character without it actually seeming like the game is trying to call out uh, other games for, for for being a certain way. Um, and it's it's very funny. It's, it's you play it for jokes basically. Um, the platform is just like it's, it's not but not bad. But it's just perfectly fun. Uh, you get a lot of mileage out of uh, switching to Dan the platformer and having like all this really chirpy, upbeat music that's uh, obviously riffing on Sonic and then switching back to Ben, who's in the uh, purgatory and he's very, very slowly walking between dead people talking to them and <laughs> stealing their inventories and stuff like that and combining stupid things with other things. Uh, so <laughs> it's just, it's so funny, uh, but so dumb. It's like, um, <laughs> there's a duct and he's like, oh, it, it, on the particular floor, he's like, what, what do I do with this duct? And then you get some duct tape. So you roll the duct tape down the duct and something happens. And it's just like, yeah, that pretty much is adventure game logic. <laughs> as much as like uh, the character of Ben is kind of lionizing this old school way of playing games, it's also revealing how absurd it is a lot of the time. Uh, and I find it like just really super enjoyable so far. Uh, I'm currently on uh, the sort of third section. Essentially what you're doing with these two characters is... Uh, the apocalypses, all the apocalypses, apocalypses are happening at once to London. And uh, so like, whether it's like Godzilla or raining fire, earthquakes, just everything is, is, is terrible. And there's one, uh, the clockwork god underground that could solve all of this. But what you have to do is you have to teach it empathy for all human emotion before it will agree to rescue the species. And so each section of the game is uh, based on an emotion. The first one is joy, which is where you get the sonic level for your platformer. Um, and I'm currently on the fear level, which is a massive kind of alien and isolation riff as well. Uh, and I just can't wait to play with the rest of it and be rewarded for how much I know about games. <laughs> but the, obviously the counter to that is like, if you don't have that knowledge and you're kind of not getting all of that, I'm not sure like whether it's actually perhaps worth getting. But I think for maybe a lot of people who would perhaps download a podcast like this, it's a, it's, it's a shoe in I think it's a, it's a good buy. How does it annoyed? Uh, how does it avoid of getting um, being frustrating? That you know, being continually reminded that your characters kind of you know one of them is very slow moving, the other one <laughs> do certain things. So it's it's very annoying initially, um, but then this is I, I don't think it's spoilers. This is the first sort of twenty minutes of the game. Uh, Dan, the platformer, realizes that he could just pick up Ben <laughs> and and run and double jump while having him on his back. And uh, there's a lot of kind of fun and kind of puzzles based around that. Um, and also, it's just good for pacing because being able to switch between them when they're in separate bits is um, like genuinely just being able to be in control of a fast character that jump, double jumps and has cheerful music and then switch back to the slightly grumpy adventurer. It's good. I think it's, it's quite nicely done. Um, I have had to go to uh, Google a couple of times for some of the puzzles, but I mean, that's to be expected, isn't it, really, with adventure games? The worst genre. <laughs> Don't at me. <laughs> 
it's not, it's not the worst genre. I love adventure games. <laughs> What's, what does the, 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 the platforming feel like? Uh, it's, it's quite... Hmm, that's a good question. I'm trying to figure out how to describe it, really. There's no... Um, there's not really... There's no sense of momentum to your character, to Dan. Uh, there's a sprint button and double jump so far. I imagine there'll be like war jumps and stuff coming up. Uh, but it's very much uh, when you land, you're, you just land still. And when you you jump for a specific point, if you run, you, your jump goes further. It feels nice, but it's uh, it's not. There's no kind of like nuance or particularly skill to it. I would say, like in terms of you know, um, I think some of the best platformers force you to overcome momentum or your character's like size <laughs> or jump height to require a degree of finesse when controlling them to actually complete puzzles. Whereas in this, if you see a platform, you could probably get to it by just double jumping and you don't you can be quite sloppy with your with your button presses there. I think it's it's deliberately very forgiving in that sense. And that this comes from someone who's just completed Ori in the Blind Forest. Oh no, Ori in the Will of the Wisps, which was a ball like <laughs> points, uh, a very good platform actually, but uh, and a, a lovely game. But it, coming back to this, this is like, oh yeah, this is just sort of easy mode. It's lovely, uh, and oh, and it shouldn't be any more complicated than it is, to be honest. Based on what it's tried to say, and the fact that if you're switching between these two different styles of play all the time, you don't necessarily have that much time to learn the intricacies of a very developed platform platforming model. Um, yeah. So it's it, it, those bits are deliberately kind of forgiving and almost like breaking free between puzzles uh so far uh so yeah, yeah. it's nice i like it's, it it's, it's nice it's nice so that's 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 all i need at the moment <laughs> it's nice so i'll take i'll take it i'll play it i'll finish it uh and it's on sale i think it's still on sale actually it's also on um, ps4 it's also on switch uh i've been playing it on switch because that's what i do now in the bar. I'm glad that these the series kind of has continued because I remember when the first one came out and um because that was kind of you know that was in the early days of indie that the very first yeah. one came out, wasn't it? And they, they were you know, really funny when but... nobody was interested in adventure games as well. And there's this kind of <laughs> yeah. kind of sort of plucky, very, very, very British kind of adventure yep. game disappears. It's still very, very, very British. Still got it's still the same voice, basically. Um Though those early games were like, whoa, the deep cuts in in that game. I think like they even put games journalists in the second one, <laughs> like specific <laughs> people that you know you might meet at a press conference. Like, wow, this is going a bit weird. Um, uh, still really really fun though. And uh, I'd, I, if you like adventure games, you should definitely play the first two. They're really fun. Also, it's just the Ben and Dan kind of personas. It's, it's a Lauren Hardy kind of team that is just you know, enticing. I enjoy their their bants. Bants is what we have. That's all we have now. <laughs> Zoom bants. The least nourishing form of bant there is. <laughs> Shall we do questions from questions? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. I've got an email here from Mr. Wendell. Uh, Mr. Wendell writes, Dear Craig and Crowbar, Bath Games with Tom Senior is now my favourite podcast segment. He's failed to do it. Uh, in this one, unless he's going to pull something out at the end I, of this one. I mentioned very, very, I snuck it in. Uh, I was talking, <laughs> the Lair of the Clockwork God I've been playing in the bath on my Switch. So, <laughs> this week's iteration. 
Mr. Wendell says, I imagine uh, that fancy string music that plays in every TV ad, a pearl white bathtub with little <laughs> golden legs, a beard and bubbles galore. Oh, it's a beautiful sight. Video version, please. <laughs> Would well, you? So, so, so we could put a Patreon tier in <laughs> for those so inclined. But <laughs> all you're going to see cost is £1,000 a week. Yeah, it's going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot. I mean, I, I sell my body for for a certain amount. You know, you have to respect this. Um, but I could, uh, I, I could, you know, I, I've got a beard already, but I could also just use phone to make an even bigger beard, like a Gandalf one. That would be good. And I could just basically talk, talk to the camera about how good um, the latest shmup I'm playing on my switches, and then I'll drop the switch in. <laughs> And then there'll be lightning, then I'll die, and I'll be a Twitch superstar. <laughs> Is that what you want? Is that what you want? Fain- £1,000 a week? Finally, you will be the skeleton. <laughs> Yay, what we always wanted. <laughs> the skeleton. Um, yeah, it's not a real possibility, but uh, I will continue to tell people about stuff to play in uh, my bath. But uh, let's also... Uh, you know, having consulted the current profile lawyers that definitely exist, uh, we should insist that you don't use electronic <laughs> equipment in the bath when you drop it <laughs> and thing, bad things could happen. Um, so, yeah, uh, this is a disclaimer. What typify, like, I don't really understand. <gasps> what is there What is there to what is, what, is the, what is different about being in the bath than lying on your sofa or in your bed. <laughs> what the hell kind of sofa do you have, Alex? So you don't <laughs> yeah, know what the like, difference is. Do you not have a wet sofa? I have a very wet sofa. <laughs> <laughs> it consists of uh, three quarters of its volume will kill you <laughs> if you sink into it. <laughs> it's, it's just it's a nice warm bath, and uh, it's, well, for for the time being, yeah, it has no, to. Okay, okay. Now we're narrowing in. So mm, it has to mm. be a fairly short game because you're going to get cold and wrinkly. No, 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 no. How? What, what are you, I never take what are you saying to I don't me? really Alex, know what, what are you about. saying to me? There's a tap by your feet and one of them makes hot things happen. So when things get a bit chilly, what? Just go and get more from the well, source. You just rely on the overflow, do you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Or you just <laughs> do a quick plug pull, let it go down, top up a top of water, get on your next level of, uh, you know, uh, get on the next level of, uh, layer of clockwork god on your switch and just sort of baste yourself to sort of <laughs> slow cook your your muscles as you're enjoying the adventuring on the screen it's lovely you are definitely selling this new patreon tier it's, it's good you're yeah. selling it hard it's real good it's real good um and you'll you go a bit wrinkly but you know no harm in that unless you're playing ikaruga in which case all the skin will fall off your thumbs <laughs> uh, so yeah there are dangers there are dangers uh, as, as our lawyers have told us be careful out there Alex you really not that's time you had a bath Alex I hate baths <laughs> I hate it I hate them because oh, it's just kind of so much effort I like to just walk into a shower uh, that's, that's, the, that's the biz can't play a game in the shower though they're not made none of this is made for playing games for God's sakes. We've got a good question actually coming up that is about um, context for playing games. All right, let's do it. Yeah. I will, um, I'll expand on my thoughts in this area. Um, but before then, David writes, I was recently playing the beautiful Urtuk, the Desolation, 
uh, which doesn't sound very beautiful, uh, uh, but it is a squad-based uh, roguelike, which is still in early access. And I found myself losing focus due to the absence of a clock. Uh, your main character, the titular Ertuk, is afflicted with a mutation and wanders a horrible wasteland in search of a cure. It really doesn't sound very beautiful. Uh, when I first got into it, I thought this would mean having a doom clock or having a hard limit to how long a run could last, like in Flotilla. Without that sense of urgency, exploring the map felt more like mopping up than a desperate search for a cure. Darkest Dungeon made me feel a similar way, a core game that I really like, but one that is weakened by a lack of sense of urgency. Even though I like the mechanics, theme, and the aesthetics of Darkest Dungeon, I've never been able to bring myself to get through the grind and finish it. Having something to push me along, whether it's Spelunky Ghost or VFTL's Rebels Fleet, is usually a welcome addition for me. How do you feel about Doom Clocks? What games do you feel have done them right? Take care, David. I hate them. I hate Doom Clocks. I don't... I feel the stress. Yeah, I feel very stressed. I Like... It's not just Doom Clocks, it's anything which puts any kind of time pressure on me. I, I mean, maybe you would call all of, all of them Doom Clocks, but like, for example, 3D platformers in the 90s would always have a fucking underwater world in which you would drown <laughs> if you were underwater yeah. for too long. Oh, so deeply stressful and not at all a fun challenge or death to avoid. And like Flotilla is a good example, I think, because I always felt... Maybe this is the point, but I always felt robbed by your inevitable demise in that game. Like, if I managed to survive a series of fights and have interesting encounters, because in between the fights you're having these sort of storybook, little bits and snippets of narrative in which you get to make choices and decisions, I always felt robbed of the consequences of those decisions. Like something interesting would happen and I would make what I thought was an interesting, ah, I'm dead. Because I was just, that was Hmm. it. I didn't feel like an interesting end to my story. It didn't feel like it had driven me to make interesting choices along the way that I wouldn't have made otherwise. It just felt like it was stopping the interesting choices having any kind of payoff. Um, And I, I just, I don't want that pressure and I want to be... I want to see the effects of my actions. Yeah, I feel I feel the same, but I do, you know, especially in roguelikes, um, when you read uh, other roguelike players write about it, they seem to play at a far higher level than I'll ever attain, and they seem to need that pressure. Um, maybe a little like David, um, the writer of the email. Uh, and that's something that I've always felt a little bit uncomfortable with in all these games. They they seem to be designed for the top level, you know, top level players. And yeah, and I'm down the bottom, feeling stressed out. I find this interesting to think about the Splunky Ghost, for example, because without the Splunky Ghost, you could meticulously go through the entire environment, get every gem, whip everything, get all the gold, get a, a big kind of kill count going, uh, and then just leave the level. But why should that be an invalid way of playing if you like the, that kind of pace of the game? Uh, sometimes like Doom Clocks are a very, very aggressive move from a game developer to actually control your experience and force you to hurry up because they think that would be more fun for you. But people with different, like, you know, different sensitivities m- might be put off by that. I don't know whether it should be a toggleable option almost. 
see Spelunky is the exception for me. I, I like the ghost. <laughs> uh, and I don't, I don't, I guess I never really thought about it as being a doom clock, even though it so obviously is. But I think yeah. f- the problem in Spelunky is that if players go slow, like everything in that game is really dangerous. And so the danger of everything incentivizes you to go slow and be careful. But if you push the player into going too far down that route, it does stop being as fun for them. And even if they do well, it encourages them to invest too much in Carrick in in a particular run too early in the game. You know, because mm. the, what they what you'll do is you'll go incredibly slowly through three levels, get a bunch of money, feel mm. like you've spent a lot of time, but you haven't actually progressed that far in terms of the linear length of the game and then you'll die anyway because you'll make a mistake you'll fuck up and you're eaten by a petrol plant or whatever um and your yeah. death will be more frustrating for the fact that you know these first three levels that ought to have taken you five to seven minutes in total to get through you instead spend 20 minutes on or 25 minutes on and it, it would it would shape that experience in a way that I think would be detrimental to it. But I don't think that's true in turn-based games. Like, I don't think that's true in Darkest Dungeon or um, Flotilla. Like, I feel like you, you can those games, you can take as long as you want, whether there's a Doom Clock or not. Um, all, all a Doom Clock would do would make me overthink every single individual decision to try and min-max it before I take the choice that's going to move the clock forward. Hmm. This is, yeah, I find this really fascinating with regards to the XCOM series, the Fire Axis XCOM series, um, from 1 to 2, where they put hurry-up mechanics, not quite doom clocks, but stuff where there would be objectives that would expire within a certain number of turns in missions that was designed to undermine a way that the top-level players of XCOM Enemy Unknown would traditionally play the game which was to just meticulously move two squares forwards at a time make sure that everyone is in fully optimal cover which resulted in a very low level of risk taking and risk taking risk taking so key to the drama of uh the combat encounters in xcom that they felt the fire axis i think felt that they had to put in those horror mechanics like you have to get to this crate within three turns or it will dissolve or you have to rescue these civilians while they're being attacked by um, you know, chrysalids and that kind of stuff. Uh, and then even on the kind of strategic layer, they put in a, an enormous sort of stage-by-stage doom clock in XCOM 2. And I think the problem with that was that um, it wasn't apparent, like, what it meant when it ticked up. Yeah. And it wasn't apparent, like, uh, it sort of implied that the game would end, but it wasn't that clear. And also it, it wouldn't tell you, you know, oh, what it meant to go two steps ahead on the doom clock it's um it's board game logic it's like a board game mechanic isn't it where you tick up between every turn you take but the board games have like a rule book that you read and it'll say when this happens then you'll have to pay a certain amount um though increasingly like uh, i love like uh you know the, the new versions of risk that have little envelopes that you open and stuff like that which play with it but in this context like an XCOM campaign is so long you've put so many hours into it that to be surprised or have your efforts undermined because you misunderstood the doom clock uh, is, yeah. a, is a bad experience. See, I loved XCOM Enemy Unknown. It's one of my favorite games, probably. 
and I hated XCOM 2. I just didn't get on with it <laughs> at all. And Doom Clocks are part of the reason why. And even on mm. like the, the smaller scale, there's like, oh, there is a chest, and if you don't get it, get to it within three turns, it's going to expire. I sort of I understand in theory why that works and why it works for other people, but to me, it's just like, oh, I'm never going to go for that chest then, because mm. the feeling of investing a bunch of decisions and actions and risk in going and getting that chest and then having it like fucking vanish <laughs> just before I get to it. It's mm. such a hard failure state, even in that context. And I'm just like, oh, but that feels utterly garbage. Like the consequence of it is like, there's no interesting consequence to it. I just didn't do the thing. I took a bunch of risks in the process, maybe screwed myself in the long term if I got some guy killed or injured. But I'm just not going to try. <laughs> That's it's my kind of a situation that the game is kind of like the game sort of forced you into this situation was just like just just horrible. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't deserve this. And maybe as Tom said, you know, this, these were mechanics designed for high level players that had kind of mastered enemy unknown, and I was never that good at enemy unknown. And so I, I'm not that person. I don't need those extra things. The, the the stresses that those mechanics are designed to introduce, I already feel because I'm not that good at it. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, really, I, I loved XCOM 2 because it was exactly the sort of like high intensity strategy experience that I wanted from, it was almost like a survivalist scenario. I felt that like the, 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 uh, the story of what you were doing in the game was, enmeshed well with the mechanics but there are definitely loads of problems with it particularly with like those bo- expiring boxes uh so so what if you get three illyrium what does that mean you don't know mm. for a long long time because illyrium is like uh, uh, something that you need high in the tech tree and um, so i think there's just kind of like lack of communication if, if you knew like oh illyrium uh, once you know the game is like oh i don't need that so i can just discard that and just keep my characters safe how, but you can't just intuit that because it's a nonsense word that they've made up for a type of element that might help you in the future, perhaps, but you don't know how. Um, and I find this with like uh, loads of 4X games as well, where they keep on adding resources, loads of different types of resources, um, but you, they're so terrible at communicating what they do to a new player unless you play for 10 hours. Um, I, I don't know how you solve that. I think like we've been having like, uh, interesting chats recently about like simplified strategy games uh, that just kind of take a lot of that out and just give you decisions and don't and take a lot of kind of plus minus number crunching economy stuff away to an extent and just say like oh do you want to go here or here this will give you this this will give you that and it's very apparent I don't know spitballing hmm yeah mm. I, I still like it too. Yeah, I mean, I could, problem, though. I could talk about this all day because, yeah, I mean, that was my other problem with the Geoscape and XCOM 2 was just I don't know how mm. to how to make good decisions here because I don't understand yeah. you know, by what metrics I'm being judged or what's important or what's not, what I can ignore right now. Like, and so it just yeah. became overwhelming. And I think more broadly, this is why this is why Sid Meier's Civilization is still the biggest 4X game is because it's historically set and you you instinctively know the yeah. horses are better than feet and so I'll get the horses you know uh, I, yeah. I, I know why stone is important I know why you know that sort of stuff rather than Ethereum or wh- whatever you called it for XCOM 2 I, I've probably said it wrong I've no idea <laughs> which is you know 
proves the point really doesn't it uh yeah I, I, like everyone knows what food is for and it also like Civ was kind of interlinks with um rts games like play age of empires you need food because you have to you soldiers have to eat and wood is good but stone is better and like you know yeah these things are just obviously the concepts are just speak for themselves um so maybe it's a science fiction setting that kind of hurts that a little bit but yeah uh, th- even though i love uh, amplitude strategy games as well i think that their forex games have so many brilliant new ideas but their resource system is just like absolute yeah. nonsense <laughs> to a newcomer <laughs> like what the fuck is dust <laughs> uh, uh, and you, you learn that dust is it or oh, it animates the corpses of warriors for one particular faction but also it builds stuff for another different faction and those games are which actually kind of decoded them they're brilliant because all the factions are so so different they behave so differently that, that you can actually just play game after game after game and get a different experience out of it but again it's that 50 dollar entry fee you have to pay <laughs> and i think you know like you do have to kind of just try and fail experiment see what the skill trees are like um or just go onto wikis and just get that information from from the internet so yeah i don't know i think that's a weakness of the genre i think it's definitely a reason why people will be put off from ever playing a forex game if, if they kind of like felt tempted to oh maybe i'll try a strategy game so if you were to roll a dice throw a dart and hit one strategy game in the pc gaming library on steam what odds do you think there are on it completely alienating you from the entire genre <laughs> <laughs> i think they're high <laughs> <laughs> think they're high <laughs> thank you for that question david uh we've got another david uh this one is in california david writes uh dear cauliflower and calla lily this last weekend i discovered that i did enjoy playing games more after having toiled in the yard for most of the day what surprised me is that i suddenly had the motivation to start a new game dragon quest 11 it's been stalled i've it's been installed for months but the prospect of a long jrpg kept me returning to more familiar fare i won't armchair psychologize my psychologize myself as to why this is the case as i'd much rather hear whether any of you have go to gay pre-game activities that make games all the more enjoyable thanks for the pods david in california yeah I, i was um uh I do find playing a game uh, after doing, and it kind of, you know, uh, I mean, I say, I was about to say work, but it has to be sort of somewhat physical, like in the garden or housework or something. Um, I do find sitting down to a game after that, I've bloody earned it. And kind of the kind of physical tiredness um, is a good reminder of of the the nice kind of, uh, I get to properly relax now. So yeah, I, I'm definitely with David in this, and I think I think the actual sort of having done exercise also tends to unravel my mind a little bit and just sort of let me relax a little bit more than I suppose there's endorphins going on as well. But yeah, it it helps me play games um, because it's sort of usual distracted sense that I'm in. You know, I, I've kind of talked about it, I think before. Um, I work. Uh, uh, you know, all day, I think, well, I suppose it's the same for a lot of people right now, but I work at a desk uh, and it has my computer at it. And if I want to play a PC game, I got to be happy with spending a whole day working and then playing, uh, continuing to sit there playing a game. So um, 
yeah, doing something totally different beforehand is like a proper tonic. Mm. Yep. I've been trying to hit the exercise bike recently, regularly, just so <laughs> I don't turn into like a total potato before lockdown ends. And uh, after doing that, uh, it, you're right, it does clear your mind, like actually focusing on being in pain <laughs> as you're doing the exercise <laughs> is, uh, is somewhat purifying. Uh, and after that, actually, I, I love, that's what I love to do for crosswords. I love, like go to the New York Times Mini and I'll do the main one for the day while I'm lying on, on my bed and uh, have the fan on. That's lovely. That's really nice. Don't it's know why. good routine. Yeah, it's good routine. I don't have a routine. Maybe I should get one. Maybe I would play more games if I had like a priming activity beforehand. Because as it is at the moment, I just, I, I do work all day. And then when the evening comes around, I, I sit and look at the list of games I could play. Yeah. Uh, and no, oftentimes never quite get around to starting any mm. of them. Which is not ideal. Yes. Not ideal. Yeah. Well, I've, I've, <laughs> It's terribly uh, vulnerable to impulse buys in the January sales. So uh, I now own all of the Mortal Kombat 11 characters, <laughs> including <laughs> Robocop, Rambo, Spawn, Terminator, Terminator 2000 or whatever the fuck. Um, so my sort of like total switch off podcast experience at the moment, put a podcast on, uh, not time daily on, whatever. Um, uh, listen to the harrowing news. While learning how to fuck people up as Robocop in the tutorials. And then once I'm finished with him, on to Spawn. <laughs> that is a, a part of my before bed routine <laughs> at the moment. I'm dissolving as a Duffy human being. I'm just dissolving. I'm just turning into a puddle. Uh, how much longer? Where's, the light? Where's that light at the end of the tunnel? <laughs> Thank you, David, for that question. Uh, <laughs> got one from someone called Caleb uh, who writes Dear Crepes and Grapes Greetings from Texas I've had a question for a bit now and one I knew you could all assist with an answer. The question that he asks is this. Is there a downside to releasing a fully completed game via early access instead of a game still in development? Uh, you can take early access feedback for bugs and quality of life improvements while still benefiting from having two releases. This thought came to me due to the overwhelming release of Valheim, which to me seems like a fully completed game. Personally, I don't see much of a downside to this as building hype and the initial release of a game seems to be the biggest points to hit. Anyways, thanks for your time for reading this and putting together the podcast. Always a delight to listen to. Much love, Caleb. Um, that is a good point. Um, is there a downside? I suppose uh, there are certain expectations of um, early access games. Like you got to, people do expect continual additions and development and improvements. I think, yeah, I think Slay of the Spire, for example, they probably could have released that out of the gate. And, yeah. But to do so, they'd probably have to have charged less for it. And also, if people are charging people for early access games that are in development, um, they'd also have to charge less for that. So that's a potential downside. But I think if you've got a really good idea and you can get that second wave of media coverage, why wouldn't you? What do you guys think? It definitely, early access definitely doesn't have the stigma attached to it, as far as I can see from here. I don't know. Do you? There was a stigma to, to start with somewhat, but it seems to be normalized now. Is that right? Yeah, that's how I, I feel about it. Yeah, yeah. 
likewise. Yeah, I don't think, like we used to separate out our early access reviews on Rock Paper Shotgun from normal reviews, and now we don't basically because I don't. Mm. When I think when people are making that purchase decision, it's mm. just a purchasing decision. They're not. They're not thinking about it on those terms really or not seeing it as a radically different type of purchasing decision at least um but i i i follow along with like industry commentators people who are constantly trying to look at numbers around steam there's uncertainty basically about although you do get another bump when your game leaves early access and hits 1.0 it's it's not clear that those two launches are actually two launches that you don't just get mm. one launch and then a, a second bump which m- maybe those two bumps would have just you would have just had one equally large launch if you combined it into a 1.0 release because there are still although there's not a stigma around early access there are still people who look at an early access game and go yeah i'm not gonna buy it yet i'm gonna wait until it hits 1.0 so maybe the people who buy it when it does hit 1.0 would have bought it if you just said it was 1.0 in the first place. Yeah, you know, yeah. Just speaking personally, game. it also like really depends on the genre. So uh, I've no interest at all in buying Baldur's Gate three in early access because I want the complete RPG storytelling experience, narrative experience that Larian wants to make in its total form, the form they're completely happy with. Uh, whereas like. I had an amazing time playing Hades in early access and seeing them just kind of add to that combat system bit by bit. So I wonder if that's a factor for, for yeah, the type as of well. game. Yeah, yeah, because I I didn't begrudge Larian for the kind of the big changes that happened to um, uh, Divinity Two after launch. Divinity Two, hang on, my I've gone completely blank. The the RPG before Baldur's Gate Three. Yeah, yeah, Divinity. original sin, yeah, Divinity original sin two. Yes, yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Um, yeah, like I didn't begrudge them, it, but I definitely didn't like the way that um, that saves would be broken way after right. release. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. and as kind of the game was was improved, like I was never angry about it, but it's like I would rather this not to have happened. So yeah, I've had no compulsion to play Baldur's Gate three until it's sort of finished. Again, it's, it's that time investment thing, isn't it? It's like I don't want to be a guinea pig for a hundred hours. I'm happy to be yeah. a guinea pig for ten minutes in a Hades run and then sort of like see it develop and enjoy how it improves over time. And Hades was already very good when they actually put it into early access as well. Like it was immediately fun. Um, and they made it quite clear the the gaps in the game were quite clear based on just like the, the hub area, the kind of bits that the doors that were locked that you knew that were going to be opened later as they sort of develop them. So yes, the format of the game, the genre of the game also seems important to me. It's, I think it's quite an interesting point that, that um, Caleb makes that kind of, you know, brings up, which is the concept of, you know, would anybody ever feel shortchanged uh, if a game was released in early access, which was in fact totally finished, like it was perfect, like there was nothing much to do on it. Um, and that the developers then sort of concocted a charade of kind of <laughs> improving it over a year um, in order to, you know, benefit from this kind of free period of kind of, testing and and um and then this sort of you know whether it works or not this double launch thing um like i don't i mean i think that people uh like the idea of an early access game which is very complete and very solid obviously but do you think anyone would ever feel shortchanged by (laughs) something not technically being early access because it's done i think they they wouldn't feel shortchanged but 
you're probably selling something at perhaps 20 quid when it could be 50 quid per yeah. per sale. I don't, I'm not sure. I wonder, like, I don't know we'd have to talk to devs about this, to be honest. It's a really interesting question. It is a really interesting question. Our final question uh, in this pod is from Jan or Jan, a.k.a. Dr. Hackenstein. Uh, Dear Craig and Crowbar, I'm an indie game dev with a small Discord community, and I recently joined your Discord. While I find my own Discord community to be a little bit too quiet, I'm completely overwhelmed with everything that's going on in yours. (laughs) It's just so fun. Uh, That was my interjection. Uh, (laughs) Even after muting all of the channels that I don't care for, it feels like there's too much work to keep up with all the messages. I had this experience with a few other discords before, so I was wondering how much activity in a Discord discord community is too much? Are you in Discord communities that overwhelm you? Why? And at what point does having a big community become more cursed than blessing? In any case, thanks for the great podcast and keep up the good work. Best regards, Jan or Jan, uh, aka Dr. Hackenstein. Do you, do you know who the true like unsung heroes of the internet are? The whole like of all of it, moderators. Our moderators. <laughs> if you yes. want, if you want, you know, a community that has rules, uh, a sense of basic decency, uh, that encourages lively discussion within you know polite parameters. It's not censorship to someone's being a twat to kick them up <laughs> or just tell them to shut up. Moderators, the the, the internet's secret weapon. Hack out all of the stuff that to just to to pare down all the posts just the good to the good ones. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> good friend and uh, current uh, Peace Game UK editor chief Phil Savage used to play with commenters something fierce on the Peace Gamer. We like we for the longest time we just didn't have moderators, which is awful and uh, something I greatly regret. But it was something we could never actually secure. Um, but there were particular, <laughs> uh, he would write, he would write things that would just like turn particular commenters comments into I love Phil Savage or something like that. <laughs> that would just automatically happen. So moderators are the key, uh, to having a lovely internet community of any size though. I, uh, though, you know, the, as these communities exponentially grow, it becomes increasingly hard to, uh, actually pass every single statement. Um, so also basically not a style guide. What's the word? What's the term? Just a code of behavior, as you'd have in any pub or club or anywhere that you went into. If you walk into a room, you walk into a public place, there's always rules that, you know, don't be a dick. You know, uh, it's not even like a dress code. It's just like, just, you know, if the rules are clearly laid out and then you break them, then kick to the cup. Yeah. I don't know. Graham, I think you probably have more developed thoughts on this than me. No, I know. I, I mean, I think that's that's about it, <laughs> really. Like, <laughs> We moderate the RPS comments, but we try to moderate them not just to remove the dicks, but to try and foster a good conversation. Like I tend to think of it as if you had a classroom of children um, yeah. and someone was talking too much, even if they were being polite and what they were saying, you might ask that person to stop talking so that someone else can have a turn because they're... They're bogarting the conversation, basically. And, like, that that's what a moderator does. If you go to, like, a, a panel discussion at a conference or something like that, the moderator isn't just there to to hur- hurl someone out because they're being abusive or rude. They're there to mm. 
to moderate, like to get to get the speakers to speak in moderation in some ways. And so we tend to try to think of it as like trying to foster a positive community rather than just trying to eliminate the negative parts of their community. Mm. Um, and that means being really proactive. That means we ban a lot of people and we ban them pretty quickly. And we some a lot of the time we're not banning them because they're assholes. Sometimes we're banning them just because they're quite tedious <laughs> like if they, if they could, <laughs> because we, you know we, we, we you get people in the comments that they're like they're like single issue commenters basically like yeah, they're just gonna that. comment on every fucking game that's got secure rom in it to say oh i hate secure rom oh, fucking drm in this game i'll never give my money to a game that's got secure rom in it and you just they'll just do that on every single post and after a while you're like Maybe not every conversation needs to be about Sekiro. Maybe that doesn't need to be the first comment underneath every single article, you know, that then gets like six responses and steers part of the conversation away. You know, like would I, I think about it as like, what if a reasonable person scrolled down to the comments and read what was being mm. said? Would they want to join in or would they think, God, this sounds fucking tedious. Why would I want to talk to these people and <laughs> leave? <laughs> if that's the case, then moderate it. Um, in terms of Discord stuff, uh, I just idle on lots of Discord servers. Other than yeah, our, our private one, I don't really read uh, because yeah, there's lots of conversation happening there, and I don't have the time really. But whenever I do dip into the Creating Crowbar Discord or the Rock Paper Shotgun Discord, they are lovely, mm. and that is thanks to our lovely moderators. I think there is a sort of moment where they get too big. I don't really understand the appeal of these sort of vast ones that kind of, you know, what, you know, you can't possibly get involved in any conversations because of the sheer number of people involved at any moment. Yeah. I don't really sort of understand the point of that. I think, yeah, you sort of, I mean, I'm kind of with uh, uh, the, the message writer today because it's like you need to, there surely is too big for for discord specifically maybe forums kind of they're they're slower in inherently than discord because discord is so easy just to snap out a, the briefest line yeah they're more ephemeral i mean you've got to accept that, that you know they are not going to read everything this is not a kind of a format for reading everything unless you're on a tiny discord which is you know friends or whatever yeah, I love skimming the. Uh, so I really like the film and telly bit of uh, the Great Global Discord and the role models bit of the Discord, which is our kind of miniatures yeah. section. And just seeing the pictures, seeing what people are doing, and sort of like giving a little kind of emoji thumbs up here and there without actually yeah. very much saying anything. And just sort of really enjoying the buzz of a, a town square for people who are equally yeah. enthusiastic it's about a the cool thing they like. And the hubbub, yeah. That sense of, that sense of noise. Um, it can be overwhelming, but also I think it's just, it's just a sign that people are invested in this community and actually kind of enjoying the community space and coming back to that every day and trying to, you know, and catch up with each other, um, which is a wonderful thing. It's just uh, the internet doesn't always have to be awful. <laughs> <laughs> and I like to think that uh, the Great World Discord is, is a, one of many examples of that. Um, also, uh, but I would say that, yeah, you're right, Alex. I'm sure there's an event horizon when a community gets so large that is it becomes, um, enjoy this new word, everyone, unmoderatable, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. where there's yeah. just simply too much stuff to pass. And you can't, uh, no one's yet written an algorithm that can 
probably can actually replace a moderator with emotional intelligence. <laughs> I think that's all the questions we have time for in this pod. Uh, you can hang out with us and our community on our Discord channel, which we've just been talking about. Um, you'll find a link to it on our website, which is at uh, com. If you have a question for us for a future episode, send it to us at questions at com, or you can tweet us at Crate and Crowbar. Uh, you can also uh, listen to uh, our pod on YouTube. Perhaps you're listening on YouTube right now uh that is at youtube uh slash or dot com slash crate and crowbar or is there a thing before i think it's just slash oh you can probably find it it's not difficult the crate and crowbar is uh kindly funded by our patreon backers if you'd like to know more about supporting our podcasts and its spin-offs visit patreon.com slash crate and crowbar and i think that is the housekeeping complete and indeed this podcast complete i've been alex wiltshire uh, and <laughs> how do I bring you in here? We can't look at each Graham other. Been Graham has been Graham. Tom has been Tom. It's true. I shall, <laughs> I, yeah, I shall remain Graham. I shall remain Tom. Uh, we had a question from Texas earlier, and I wanted to kind of uh, best wishes to everyone in Texas that are having an awful winter at the oh, moment. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just sending our love, basically. Indeed. Uh, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. everybody.